Direction signs in life and in travel are profoundly helpful and useful. I remember the summer of 1989, I'd been the camp pastor at a centrifuge youth camp in Glorieta, New Mexico, about 25 miles north east of Santa Fe there. And when I'd first made the trip out there early in June, the, uh, I, I was asleep on the trip. I just had some wisdom teeth pulled, and so I really did not make my way through many of the towns until I woke up 13 hours later in Glorietta. On the way back, I drove by myself about 10 weeks later, and I had to travel through Amarillo, Texas. You know, you can get there by morning, somebody tells us, but in any case, I drove through Amarillo, and there was road construction going on, and the direction signs at that moment were down, and the sky was clouded all over. So I couldn't see the sun, and I didn't know where it was. Couldn't really tell which, which was north, south, east, and west, and when I don't have direction signs, I just figured that out. Now, I'm not going to stop for directions, of course. I'm a man. I don't need directions. <laughs> but in any case, I found 287, which takes off back into Fort Worth, where I live, and I got on to 287, and in a while, I was in Oklahoma. And I thought, well, you know, 287 goes, you know, by Oklahoma South. I, I, I didn't remember going through Oklahoma coming the first time. But I did not realize I was actually going the wrong direction on 287 until I saw a sign that said, Welcome to Colorado. <laughs> I had driven two hours out of the way for lack of direction either directional signs or the direction of the sun on that cloudy day. I'm afraid oftentimes that can happen in our walk with Jesus Christ. In fact, there are several models of the Christian life, um, all but one of which really are in, in uh, biblical judgment, the wrong direction. One would say, Jesus, let me shape you. This is the difficulty of ritualism. It's very focused on sacred spaces, and is unwilling to change those because nothing meaningful happens unless it happens in the building, it happens with official clergy, and according to the dictates of previous experience and previous dictates and tradition. There's some that are very guarded about that. Now, there's not an awful lot of life change that goes on with this, and Christ is not found outside the ritual or outside the sacred spaces in a personal walk in holiness. In fact, Scripture and really the will of Christ is submitted and interpreted through tradition and through ritual. There's an awful lot of defensiveness about this. And so Jesus ends up being very narrow and distant when it comes to church ministry and worship. But there's a second model, and that is, Jesus, let me control you. This is the challenge and difficulty of rigidity. There is a list of extra-biblical rules for personal behavior. Not all bad, but many that really have no relationship to Scripture. And it is accompanied by a lot of suspicion of those who don't follow this as intensely as others. And as time goes on, the circle of friends and contacts with needy people begins to constrict. There's a narrowing of the fellowship. And so Jesus ends up being very exclusive in relationships. The third model is, Jesus let me use you. And that is consumerism in the local church. People who come are consumers and staff and the church family ministry and programs happen to be 
really nothing more than those who provide products for those who consume them. Doctrine and scripture and God's will, the lordship of Christ and holiness do not factor prominently in this. What factors prominently is attracting people to a local church and keeping them by constantly responding to their changing needs and whims and desires. When those desires are not met, they leave and change brands and loyalty to other brands and other places. And so Jesus ends up as pliable as a customer service agent and is reduced to that. There's a fourth model, and that is, Jesus, let me update you. This is what I call culturalism. Culture is in the driver's seat of this model of the Christian uh, faith. Scripture is subsumed to that and only used when it justifies uh, changing with the culture. In other words, the latest fads and the latest moral changes and trends uh, are justified and accommodated nearly every time. It's the kind of thing that your grandparents would be terribly shocked to hear today it's being called the Christian faith. And so Jesus ends up accommodating each new moral and social movement that the culture embraces without concern for scripture, eternity, salvation, or the soul, or those things that are prominent in the Word of God. The fifth and only accurate model in its totality is, Jesus, let me follow you. This is real Christianity. And here in Mark chapter 8 and chapter 9, Jesus taught his disciples the real meaning of faith in terms of following him. And he does that beginning in verse 22. Now, verse 22 through 26, uh, we find that Jesus healed the blind in two stages. And, and this is a unique and, and actually a curious story here in the text. He came to Beth, Bethsaida in verse 22, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. And he, watch this, he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of town. The man had been a public person all along and he gave him some privacy. And watch this, when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. And so the spittle and the touch improved his vision. Now, was Jesus thoroughly capable of healing this man with one touch? Well, of course he was. But he gives him a second touch. Verse 25, then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Now, is that not the way it is with us? We need multiple touches from Christ to grow in our vision. With the first touch, he did see and he saw men, but they looked like trees. So Jesus touched him again. Now, this story is uh, unique uh, and it, it is curious. It is curious because Jesus spit in his eye. I want to be delicate here and not gross, but he put spit in the man's eye. I, I don't know about you, but usually... I've seen when people have their eyes spit into, it blurs their vision, but when Jesus does, it clarifies things. That is what Christ is able to do. He did that in John chapter 9 with mud. Mud in a man's eye clarified his vision. And that's what we find here with Christ. But Jesus heals this man of his blindness in two stages, and I think that's a great indicator for us about how we come to sight. We come to sight in stages and in a process. So that's the first thing. He rebuked the, he, uh, he healed the blind in two stages, but verses 27 through 38, Jesus rebuked the confused in harsh tones. 
Now, there are two sections to this passage. One is this person, and another is his persistence. He clarifies his person in verses uh, 27 through 32. And, and we find here that Jesus and his disciples went out of the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? And then we see some misunderstanding about who Christ is. So they answered, well, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, others one of the prophets. Now they were not totally irreligious, but they were totally wrong. It is entirely possible to be religious and wrong. And that's what many in the crowd were, according to verse 28. Then he said to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the person with the most explosive term in first century Israel. The most explosive title. Beforehand, Jesus had used the term son of man, which meant the same as what we find in verse number 29, the Christ. But it's more obscure and not nearly as explosive. He wanted to clarify who he was before he launched the explosiveness of his title and person upon the world. But here Peter confesses the most explosive term and the most politically challenge, uh, challenging term in the first century world in Israel. And he says, you are the Christ. You are the legitimate competitor with Caesar and the Jewish leadership. And that's why Christ kept this term back until later in his ministry, or at least to the half point here in Mark chapter 8. And so he clarifies who he is. He was misunderstood, but here he is the Messiah, David's son, long-awaited king of Israel, therefore king of the entire world. So he's being very blatant here, and Jesus confirms this. And then he clarifies the meaning of this beginning in verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man, again a synonym with Christ, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again and he spoke this word openly it was very clear Jesus wanted them to understand I am deed and the, and the king but not in the way that you and the popular culture imagine I am the king in terms of crucifixion burial and resurrection I'm not going to go after Rome, and I'm not even going to go after initially the Jewish leaders to supplant them. I'm going to go after a greater enemy, the real enemy that you do not recognize. You'll only recognize after I'm dead and rise again. And that happens to be the enemy of human sin. That is the root cause of all the sorrow and suffering in the world, and I'm going to take care of it in my death and resurrection. It's what he does. He clarified this. He clarified this here in the text, and then he persists in this with the caustic rebuke and a clarifying word to Peter. He spoke it openly in verse 32, and then watch. Peter helps Jesus as Jesus is misguided, Peter thinks. Peter has better insight into spiritual things than Jesus. And some of his offspring are with us. In verse 32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. This is the same word used for Jesus when he cast out demons. It's a harsh word. But when Jesus had turned around and looked at the disciples and saw their agreement with Peter and how misled they were, he rebuked Peter, saying, 
Get behind me, Satan. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Your thoughts of the kingdom and spiritual things are too consumed with the opinions and the views of men and women. Not with God. You're entirely religious, but you're wrong on this point. So Jesus gives him intense, caustic rebuke. And he gives him a clarifying word in verse 34. When he called all the people to himself, with his disciples also, he said to them a word of denial. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself. I need to make it really clear. The goal of the Christian faith is not to make you more of who you already are. That's not your greatest opportunity. It's your greatest liability. Deny yourself. A word of denial. Then there's a word of death. Take up your cross. We wear them in our ears and around our necks on gold chains. That's the equivalent of wearing an electric chair or something to cause a lethal injection, a symbol of first century death. And Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you've got to deny yourself and die. Die to your goals, dreams, and aspirations. And then there's a word of direction. Verse 34 follow me. Don't search among men and women for the truth. Follow me. And then he goes on and gives a word of deliberation. You've got to calculate some things and answer some questions. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. He, Jesus may have said, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. In other words, Jesus' pattern of thought is entirely contrary to that of the world and natural human inclinations. Well, he continues, not only with that, but verse 36. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? You know, Jesus believed, like many of us, we're going to be dead a lot longer than we're going to be alive. And it's good to calculate that. All the pleasure that you could gain in this world by rejecting Christ, all the sorrow you can avoid by rejecting Christ, is nothing compared to eternity. You've got to calculate these things when deciding about Christ. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Were well, there are plenty of answers to that, none of them adequate. Then he gives a word of devastation in verse 38. Whoever is ashamed of me in my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You see how Jesus shifts the focus and attention from this world and what you can gain in this world to the other side when Christ comes. Jesus had, in the words of one theologian, a fundamental eschatological disposition. What does that mean? That means he was always focused on eternity. And he was constantly trying to move people's vision and view to making decisions and calculating on the basis of the other side of the grave. And in his coming is what Jesus does here. Well, Jesus continues in chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. 
He makes a promise in verse 1, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Well, that's a remarkable statement. You'll not see death until I come again in power, is essentially what he's saying. Well, did they all die before Christ returned again? Yes, but hold on just a minute. Here's how Jesus fulfills this promise in verse number 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no longer on earth can whiten them. So Jesus drops the robes of his humanity and unveils his deity and his royalty before them. This is a preview of Jesus returning with the kingdom in power and in glory. He fulfills that promise and again is moving them to think in terms of the future of eternity and of his return. Well, verses 11 through 13, he continues this. And they asked him, and that is with fulfilling the prophets with biblical emphasis. That is, in verse 11, they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first to restore all things. And how, how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? See, he returns to that theme of his death, and he does it on the basis of the Scripture. I say to you, Elijah is also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. The disciples ask about Elijah. That's something not real, uh, very uh, prominent amongst us. But the Old Testament did say before Christ, Elijah, in a sense, would come back. And he did that in John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a new era Elijah. And they ask that question, and Jesus gives a brief answer to it, but Jesus gets back to the main point of what is written in the Scripture. The problem is, is that the disciples had said, now they say, or the scribes say, Elijah's coming, when in fact the Scripture said that. They could not root their understanding of Elijah and John the Baptist in the Scripture, but only in popular sayings. And so Jesus gets back to what is actually written in the Scripture. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be treated with contempt, And then in verse 13, he returns to the theme of Elijah as it is written in verse number 13, which happened to be a reference to the Old Testament. So they're moving, Jesus is moving them from popular myth to what is actually in the Scripture. Well, what all does this mean about following Jesus Christ then? The truth is, you can follow Jesus when you clutch to his definition of the faith. And so that naturally leads us to the question, am I following Jesus? Well, let me give you a few questions to think through that I've had to live with all week long. The first question is, do I seek Jesus for multiple touches? Do I seek him for multiple touches? When you came to Christ and you were converted by repentance and faith in the gospel of Christ, he touched you. But following that, there must be multiple touches to see, just like the blind man. I read a devotion this past week from a deceased but popular pastor from many years ago. And he talked about John Milton, about how John Milton wrote his great work, Paradise Lost, when blind. He went blind at about 43. 
but following that wrote one of the greatest works in all of human literature. It is still, you know, now 600 years old, still the subject of thought and reflection, research and study. Today, dissertations are written on that one work written by a man after he went blind. And it's a biblical metaphor about how we lost paradise and how there is hell in eternity. And the author made the statement that perhaps God allowed him to go blind so that he could see paradise lost. Sometimes in blindness we see. And that's what happened to the blind man in the text. And I couldn't help but thinking about my difficult upbringing that I've shared with you before. And I began to wonder why God did I have such a difficult time when I was a child? Why did my mother suffer so? Heartbreak over a divorce, struggle with alcohol, untimely death. And why did I have to live through a very difficult step-parent situation? Why? I don't mind bringing those questions before God. They're very, very real. I will tell you this. I don't think I've got all the answers to that, and I'm content not having them all. But I will tell you as I stand before you today, I have a heart and a zeal for making my marriage permanent and for being a dad and raising up my children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And I don't know that I would have that if I hadn't grown up with that lack when I was a kid. I think maybe I would have been presumptuous and just assumed that these things would develop and happen. But that's where my heart is. I, I really personally don't care about much except following Christ as, as bumbling and struggling as I do, about sharing His love with the world and loving my family and my children. And I think that that focus and that attention and that narrowing of my desire probably comes out a lot because of how I was brought up in my life. I think it probably does. May I encourage you? You and I need multiple touches from Jesus. And I say that because the only thing that brings me content, contentment, the only strength that I've got to endure that lack is that daily I was taught to seek Him in the Word and seek Him in prayer and seek Him in a local church and seek Him in fellowship with the people of God. Every strong Christian has a growing and dynamic devotional life and walk with a local church, and there is no exception to that. None whatsoever. And so if your heart is burdened, and there's some blindness, there's some wounds, I will tell you, the Lord Jesus Christ is able to give you multiple touches. And He wants to. And He will walk with you, and talk with you, and tell you, you are His own. Do I seek Jesus for multiple touches? The second thing is, do I follow Jesus in sacrificial pain? Now, Jesus was not exaggerating or overstating his claims. If any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up a cross, and follow me. Following Jesus begins with a funeral. It continues with multiple funerals as well. 
whenever we follow Jesus, we begin with the funeral of our desires, our goals, our dreams, our aspirations, our opinions, our beliefs, and we lay them all before him and say, Dear God, they now belong to you. Take away what you will. Let remain what you approve of. But when you're done with me, may nothing be alive and may nothing thrive in me that displeases you. And that then becomes your song and your motto in prayer on a daily basis. Every serious follower of Christ visits the funeral home of his goals, dreams, and aspirations every day. Reminds me of a man who was witnessing to a mathematician one day. He shared Christ with him and explained, when you come to Jesus Christ, you take yourself off the throne and put Jesus there at the center of your life. And the mathematician said, I am reluctant for that decentralization. <laughs> I'm reluctant. You know, he was honest, but the word he used, decentralization, is entirely appropriate. Whenever we decide to follow Christ as Lord and we're really following Jesus, we are no longer the center of our lives. No human is. Jesus becomes the center of it all. And so I, I do need to say to you, that isn't going to make some people happy when you follow him. I wish I could tell you otherwise. But that may not make everyone happy. In fact, I've, I've got to go so far as to say, If everyone agrees with you and your walk with Christ does not cause you pain and sacrifice, you're probably not following Jesus. Now, let me quickly add, that doesn't mean that's licensed to be obnoxious and rude, okay? And to go pick a fight with someone. But Jesus was not exaggerating his claims here. If anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So, do I follow Jesus in sacrificial pain? The third thing is, do I foresee Jesus in royal glory? Jesus was transfigured before them to show them the glory of the future. And by doing that, he inflamed their vision and he inflamed their desires. And the most prominent feature of the future kingdom that Jesus will bring is that he is finally exalted to where he should be. Oh, the Father's already accomplished that, but all the earth and all of creation will finally do so as well. Now, there would be some who might object and say, well by thinking about Christ and his return in eternity, that's going to make me so heavenly minded I won't be worth any earthly good. And, and that may happen to a few. But ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but the biggest temptation today is not to be so heavenly minded. It makes us worth no earthly good. It's the other way around. To be so earthly minded that we never think of heavenly good. We may sacrifice for Christ. We may suffer privation for Christ in this life, but Scripture teaches us to be confident that He's got something greater than we give up here on the other side. And we are not to be satisfied with the small, temporal, temporary joys of this life to the exclusion of what is on the other side. C.S. Lewis addressed this one time, and he called the great promises that God gives us for the future unblushing promises. I like that term. God makes some very strong, firm, thunderous statements about what 
favor he will give to his people. He does that with miracles. He just announces the miracle and expects the world to deal with it. He begins Genesis 1 with a miracle. He begins the New Testament with a miracle. He ends the Bible with a miracle and says, deal with it. I'm a miracle-working God. No, no miracles, no Christianity whatsoever. He does that with his promises as well. They're blatant. They're, they're bold. He doesn't hedge them. He doesn't, he doesn't qualify them. He says, come to Christ and follow him, and their glories beyond what you could ever imagine for those who know Christ and follow him. In fact, he goes so far as to say in Romans 8, 17, that if we follow Christ, we are actually joint heirs with Christ. That means what Jesus Christ inherits, his people inherit. What Jesus inherits, he intends to share with all of those who follow him. And so the favor and the joy and the exaltation that Jesus Christ enjoys or will enjoy is something he promises to all of his people. Well, you can sit out there quiet if you want to. I'm about to run around the building. (laughs) In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say, not only will Christ be glorified, but his people will be glorified as well in Romans 8.30. This is what he has. So these are the unblushing promises. And after God gives them, C.S. Lewis goes on to say, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition. When infinite joy is offered us, and we are too often like the ignorant child who wants to keep on making mud pies in the ghetto because he cannot imagine a vacation at the beach. We are far too easily pleased. And that is what Jesus Christ offers in royal glory. So to follow Jesus means his future vision for the kingdom compels us and we keep casting our eyes to Canaan's fair and happy land where our possessions lie. There's a final question, and that is, do I know Jesus in biblical proportions? That's a challenging concept, but it, at least in word, but it's not too difficult to understand. Jesus in this text moves them from the minor issue of Elijah to the major issue of his death and his resurrection. And like the disciples, it is entirely possible to read the Bible and miss the point of the Bible. Without checks and accountability, we can project ourselves onto Scripture. In fact, without checks and accountability, if we look at the Bible in isolation, without the help of the people of God, what we will do is that we may not find God. We might just find ourselves and justify ourselves and confirm what we already think and already believe. So let let me put it to you this way. The proportions of the Bible... The emphasis of the Bible, the repeated subjects of the Bible, are all in perfect proportion. In other words, what's repeated, what is emphasized, what is prominent in the Scripture is what is repeated, what is emphasized, and what is prominent with God. The Bible accurately reflects who God is. And so those subjects that are constantly repeated are repeated in the Word of God because God thinks they're important. Now, we face this often when studying the book of Revelation. The biggest curiosity 
And the number one question when coming to the book of Revelation happens to be what? What is the meaning of 666? Well, the text explains it there in verse 18 of Revelation 13. It's the number of man. It's a Hebraism. Hebrews didn't have many comparative words or emphatic words in their vocabulary. John was a Hebrew, and so he put the number six, and that wasn't enough, six and six. Man was created on the sixth day. Six is the number of man, and so when you put three sixes together, what you have there is emphatically human, human-centered. And that's what the Antichrist will do. But what they oftentimes miss are the other references in Revelation. Did you know the book of Revelation has more to say about the blood of Christ and His death for our salvation than it does 666? 666 appears one time in the book of Revelation, but references to the death of Christ appear at least 47 times in the book of Revelation. Now why is it that 666 appears once and the death of Christ 47 times in the book of Revelation? Because it's important to God. It's important to Him. And that is true about the emphasis, and that is uh, true about the repeated topics in the Word of God. What's repeated is emphatic with God. And so th that is to say, if we're going to follow Jesus as He defines it, we've got to know the Word of God. And there is no substitute. We've got to roll up our sleeves, perspire, and engage in the grunt work of knowing God in His Word. Oh, hey, I want to tell you, I have great, great joy talking to folks who doubt the Bible. I do. There's an awful lot of apologetic material that we can use uh, with uh, those who do, and I sympathize with those who do. Don't mean to embarrass them. Sometimes they get confused, and sometimes uh, there are uh, an awful lot of weapons posed against the Scripture and faith in the Scripture, and oftentimes we've not adequately trained our members and our people to face those. We, we will do that. We've got a great college class that engages in that now. But when I meet someone who doubts the Scripture, I encourage them, well, read the Scripture. And what God will do with His own Word, if your heart is humble, is that God will manifest Himself from the pages of the Word of God. And God Himself will enter the experience with a humble heart. An arrogant heart, He, he will stay far away from. But a humble heart, God will manifest His presence and attest Himself to the power and the truthfulness of the Word of God. And he'll do it with every humble heart. A broken and contrite heart God will not despise, the Scripture says. So that is to say, two things are emphatically important here when it comes to following Jesus in his word. Number one, group Bible study. We must be involved in a group that studies the Bible so that others can check and keep us accountable for our thoughts about God. If we look at the word in isolation, we threaten and jeopardize our own walk with Christ and we do so to our peril. But there's a second thing, not only group Bible study, but reading the Bible through. Instead of focusing on a verse from our favorite book of the Bible, which on occasion may be useful, we really need to know all that God has said and revealed about himself in the totality of scripture. Now, with these two things, that's why some people are shocked to attend a Bible study. That's why some people are shocked to read the Bible through or hear a biblical message because all of their conceptions about God are obliterated with an exposure to his word. 
It reminds me of C.S. Lewis again when he uh, was converted. He says the evening he knelt down, he was the most dejected and the most reluctant convert in all of England because he had to conclude that everything he thought beforehand was wrong. Someone who had three majors from Oxford University had to conclude he was wrong. And that oftentimes happened. But I've got to tell you, life is in the shock experience. God gives us life there at that point. God is, and this may shock some, God is more holy and exacting and demanding than you probably know. To step into His heaven and grace and favor, you must have unblemished righteousness. You cannot approach God with any imperfection. He demands it. That's shocking to some. But God is not only more holy, exacting, and demanding than maybe we imagine. God is also more gracious than we could ever conceive. Because what He has done is that He knows we are far below the standard of righteousness He demands and exacts upon us. We're far below. And He's not satisfied with the condemnation that justly comes our way. And so what He does is that any time anyone renounces anything that keeps them from Christ and relies only on the death and resurrection of Christ, God takes the righteousness and unblemished purity of Jesus Christ and transfers that like clothing to the sinner. God is willing to do that even with you. Jesus died for you, took your place, and if you will renounce anything that keeps you from Christ and rely only on His death and resurrection and place your only hope there and call on Him to save and forgive, that exchange will take place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The purity and the favor that Jesus Christ enjoys before His Father, He offers to the world, to anyone, who will renounce what keeps them from Christ and rely only on the death and resurrection of Christ. Friend, this could be your greatest day that you've ever lived by opening yourself to Jesus Christ. Father, we want to pray that would be true in lives today. We exalt you for that. And I want to pray, dear Father, that you would give friends the urgency to rush and run and fly and flee to Jesus Christ today. Help them come to know you by renouncing whatever keeps them from Christ and relying only on His death and resurrection. I pray that you'd help them to seek the help that they need as well. For others that need to become part of Beach Haven, I pray that you'd move on their hearts to do so, that they would sense your direction here according to your will. Lord, those with needs and challenges and difficulties, I pray they'd turn them all over to you and begin a life of multiple touches in Christ. And Lord, when it's all said and done and the final amen is uttered, I want to pray that we would follow you as you have defined what it means to follow Christ. As you keep talking to God, our staff are going to be standing here at the front. We're going to sing a song and we want to ask you to come. We want to offer you all the help that you'll need. They'll be standing here. You make your way here 
Tell them your spiritual need and we'll be glad to help you. Let's quickly stand and let's sing as Tim leads us. And you come. And you can come.